Hey y'all, welcome back to Bowls with the Bard. My name is Cakes, I am your host. Today, we are continuing to talk about the problem plays with a discussion about the Winter's Tale. If the definition of a problem play is a play that makes it hard for you to tell if it is a comedy or a tragedy, I think The Winter's Tale slots pretty perfectly into that definition. We will dive a little bit more into that a bit later, but first, let's meet our guests for today. First, we have a return guest to the show. We have Regine Vital. Regine, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes. Hi, um, I'm Regine Vital. She, her, hers. Um, and I am super excited to be back to talk about this play, which is like one of my favorites. It's 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 in the top three and it's like vying for 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 first place, to be perfectly honest, in my heart and in my mind. So yay. I feel that it's in my top three as well. So nice. <laughs> awesome. And our second guest today is new to the podcast, though we have been meaning to have him on for a very long time. Boy, have we ever. <laughs> yes, we have. We have <laughs> Brendan Edward Kennedy with us. Brendan, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, everybody. My name is Brendan Edward Kennedy. You can call me Brendan. I, the Edward is just in there because you got to have a name. It's uh, <laughs> my professional name. Uh, pronouns he, him, his. Uh, yeah, super jazzed to be here as uh, as uh, Cakes or as I called her, uh, Michaela. <laughs> That's how I know you. I was like, oh, Cakes. Delicious. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, we we have been talking about getting me on this, this here podcast uh, since before uh the before uh, since in the before times really oh, wow. uh yeah. back when we were working with uh brave spirits theater rest in peace um yeah okay. so uh really really happy to be here finally yeah i'm i'm so excited to have you both i am so jazzed to talk about this play uh we've <laughs> definitely had some uh some conversations that could be a little bit of a downer for some of these plays this season mm. so i'm excited to have one that's uh a little bit less of a downer i mean there's some <laughs> stuff in here that'll be a little a little rough but this play's more yeah. fun to talk about um but before we dive bear. into that I mean, <laughs> I Does mean, it Does it? Ooh. <laughs> okay, we're already digging into the controversy. Yeah. Get ready. Everybody. Right. <laughs> well, before we get too far in, I am going to smoke a bowl. Regine is going to drink some wine and Brendan is going to allow his edible to kick in a little bit more. <laughs> are back we are nice and lit and ready to talk about the winter's tale we're gonna talk about winter's tale man yeah oh God, <laughs> no it's beautiful <laughs> so as i was saying at the top winter's tale really does slot like perfectly into the definition of a problem play but Unlike something like Measure for Measure that gives you kind of like a whiplash feel where you're going back and forth between the comedy tragedy, 
Winter's Tale kind of gives you like a tale of two halves. Like one half mm-hmm. is is quite tragic and dramatic, and and the second half feels like comedic and and lovely. And I feel like if you're an audience member who is not prepared for that, can really catch you off guard. So I guess my first question about this play is like, how do we handle such a drastic tonal shift in the middle of a play? And how do we like allow our audiences to, I don't know, experience that in a way that isn't confusing or that doesn't throw them off? Regine, do you want to start? Sure. Um, I don't know, to be perfectly honest, that you can like kind of pre-plan that because the reality with a lot of Shakespeare is folks come into the space with their attitudes about it already. Um, so if you're somebody who knows the winter's tale and you kind of know what's going to happen, then you're you're prepared, right? For the fact that this first half is going to be like really hard and maybe even kind of suck emotionally. And then it's going to be like, fun but also what's going what the fuck and then then like maybe it figures itself out and if you don't know the winter's tale then even in the fun parts you're kind of like what the fuck is going on and why um and and i think all you can do if you're producing the play is sort of maybe lean into that lean into the fact that it's a little bit what's going on um i think the thing that i like about the winter's tale you know the new uh, it's not new but like you know before it was just what is it a comedy or is it a tragedy and now we're in a place where we have multiple genres in Shakespeare right is it a comedy tragedy history romance and I think the idea of a romance is really helpful because a romance almost can be anything particularly like a fairy tale so if you're cool with like you know Sleeping Beauty starting off with a party and then like the baddest witch in town comes in fuck all y'all she's gone like sleep for forever and y'all gonna regret shit right at the top if you can handle that then I think like you're actually more prepared to handle the winter's tale than you think and I kind of feel like if like I always think when when doing the romances play up the fairy tale of it play up the like sort of otherworldliness of it because that actually kind of helps soften the edges of, of the parts that feel a little whoa what's going on huh hmm. I love yeah. that I, yeah, I, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I resonate mm. with that. I think it's interesting that like we do, I guess, kind of set ourselves up for a sort of expectation when we categorize these plays in a certain way. And like yeah. when you take it out of that context, it is like, oh yeah, well, in other stories, you you get happy and sad all the time. So Yeah. You know, because like problem plays are what we're talking about. And like it's funny because like the term problem play is like who even says that anymore? But also it, but also like, no, but really like some of these plays, like what the fuck? They're like, not only are they problems because we don't quite know what they are, but some of them are problematic. But when it comes to like, you know, categorization, I always say, yes, it, it is weird when you can't quite pinpoint what it is, but also like, if you had told me the first time I read Hamlet that it's actually funny as hell, I'd have been like, who the, what are you talking about? That play is funny as shit. Like, the first time I saw it, I was like <laughs> <laughs> laughing out loud, and I was like, "It's a oh, laugh riot." It is. So I'm serious much though. Fun. Yeah, and who would have thought that? Like, I mean, I think Hamlet is the ultimate problem play, and that's just one reason why. But yeah, I think there's a world where if you just like just expect the unexpected, and you'll be fine. Huh? huh. Yeah. Sure. 
<laughs> I vibe with that. Brendan, do you have anything you want to add? Yeah, I've been in this play uh, twice and I've seen it mm. once. So uh, one thing that helps to prepare the audience for that big tonal shift is by having a really good actor who plays time. In both productions I've been in, uh, one with Chesapeake Shakespeare Company and Baltimore Shakespeare Factory, both obviously utilize time, the character, uh, to kind of, as a guide to be like, hey, everybody, you're about to see something very different because some time has passed. Um, and one, one production, the Chesapeake Shakespeare, uh, really leaned into the magical element, presenting time as sort of this, well, initially a a character who is shrouded in rags and then t transforms into someone much like a Disney princess. Mm -hmm. uh, to literally, you know, kind of flip-flop between, oh, we were in the dark times and now we're in the bright times. And the, the Baltimore Shakespeare Factory one had a more grounded approach with time as this sort of maternal, like, gardener character who came in with, like, overalls and, a, and like, a floppy sun hat and gardening <laughs> gloves, uh, you know, setting up the, the budding romance between Florizel and Perdita, uh, mm. and just kind of inviting people in to say, hey, everybody. You know, some time has passed less in a grander sort of way more of a, a more of a grounded kind of way and uh to speak to the the sort of overly categorized sort of way that we have organized the canon of shakespeare you know like shakespeare if you said oh shakespeare hey um i've been working through some of your problem plays he would first say wow you speak very differently than i do and two what's a problem play uh so yeah, like you can do a lot uh, with this play and you can, as you said, you know, set it up as kind of like a fairy tale. It is literally a tale, uh, like, you know, sad tales are best for winter. It was, I think the line that Mamilius, rest in peace, uh, King says, <laughs> justice for Mamilius. This play does not do that poor baby any justice. We'll get into that later. But, you know, yeah, yeah. I think what you can do is set up that this is... I feel like this play is sort of kind of gearing towards something much like a storybook with you know big sudden grand changes that occur. Yeah, I think if you sort of lean into that, that could also be a, a very very good way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I and just really quickly, I think I agree with if the the person playing time is really able to sort of whether it's something simple or something that feels you know grander and more magical but the, the you know just really if, if you can get the audience to trust that person right mm -hmm. like trust mm -hmm. me it's been 16 years everybody's yeah. 16 years older so like time does what it does and also you know we're going to go to a different place for a little bit like a very <laughs> different place and if you just kind of <laughs> trust that person and what they're telling you then like, oh, okay, like, and it's time, right? Like, like what yeah. more kind of all encompassing being could there be <laughs> besides time? So if you trust that person and trust like that they're leading you aright in terms of the story, I think that that's really helpful as well. That's so cool. I'm so glad that you guys brought up that character. I feel like they have one monologue so it's it's so easy you could forget that that character even exists and I think I have seen productions that just cut it 
flat out. Well, that's, that's a yeah, shame. Exactly. That, why? Exactly. Like it's such an excellent transition point. And I, I think you're right. Like I've, I've seen several different iterations of sort of like a grand magical being playing that part. And it's, it helps with the transition. Yeah. I mean, Shakespeare included it for a reason. Yes. Because, yeah. You, know, you, can, you can you can chop and screw Shakespeare how you want, but there are some structural elements, let's say, like a load-bearing monologue yeah. that you can't just get rid of. Yeah. I'm yeah. Sorry, shots fired. <laughs> no, no, you're absolutely right. It's like there there are certain structural things that you like, you know, in, in history plays, for example, it's random people who aren't actually that important to the history part of the mm. play, but give you important exposition. It's like, no, there's information you need to know. There's context you need to have in order for the next three acts to make any fucking sense, right? Or like, there's information you need to know in order for like what we just watched in the last four acts to make sense in what's about to happen. So, and time is one of those, one of those monologues. Like you, if you, if you take it away, it's weird. It's It's like, you're taking away one of the like structural poles on which the whole thing sits mm. like the play can't stand without that monologue and and it's and a lot and like i'm thinking of the other like you know in cymbeline like there are certain things that are like that and pericles like the the character of gower um uh, just mm -hmm. like randomly showing up and speaking of this whole long monologue like why are you telling us what's going to happen before it happens and it's like actually Shakespeare this loves doing him something. some exposition. He does, yeah. Sorry. And it's like, he does. And it's like, what's a way to do this that's interesting? And like, you know, and if you, honestly, if you've got a director who knows their shit and you have a charismatic actor who can sort of carry all that, like it actually it lifts the play up, I think, rather than like drags it down. So, yeah. Amen. Well, before we get time, <laughs> we get Leontes. <laughs> um and uh Leontes is a piece of work he, oh boy he, is he he's a character that is hard to wrestle with because he has this change this shift to jealousy that happens so quickly like probably more quickly than any other character shift in all of Shakespeare oh, maybe that, that might be a grand statement I might need to take that I back but yeah, I think, like... No, I think I think you're if if it's not, it's certainly up there because it's top of the play and it is nigh immediate. And yeah. even like mining the text for, OK, what could have possibly set him off in this situation? It's like, oh, there's not much there. What are we going to do? Problem play? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's that's kind of exactly my question. Like, how do you handle something like this like how do you get an audience to believe that the character is actually feeling it how do you get an audience on board with following a character when they're behaving this way like uh, i don't know all the questions about leontes sure. like how do you get yeah, a, yeah, an audience yeah. on board with him brendan do you want to start with that sure absolutely um so my my fiance emily suture who was also on this show <laughs> We were joking before we were running these questions. Uh, and when we came to this question, uh, Emily said, you tell me, I have yet to see it done very well at all. Um, and I'm inclined to believe them. Uh, it's, it's certainly real fucking tough. I think 
one thing that interests me is working with the text but also like adding extra text extra textual elements like movement or interstitial mm -hmm. sort of i don't know not not exactly like inventing new shakespearean sounding lines mm -hmm. but something that implies that that imp not improves on the, t the text but uh adds to the text adds another wrinkle to characterization and while you know this particular play would be tough for that because this this big fucking change occurs at the very top um there's not a lot of time for that but i think that there are ways to incorporate that maybe as like a pre-show sort of thing or some yeah. maybe you get rid of the you omit the initial scene with camillo and other guy and yeah. insert something there to sort of fill out that uh, that relationship between leontes and hermione another thing i had another thought and now it's escaping me oh beans it's hi podcast hi podcast oh shoot <laughs> oh, bad audio. Uh, yeah um oh actually i remember the production of the winter's tale that i saw was at the folger theater in dc um mm. it was directed by aaron posner now aaron posner gonna aaron posner he's big into <laughs> As I said, adding extra textual sort of things like the uh, characters introducing themselves to the audience as their characters saying, I will be playing this tonight. I'll be playing this. Uh, this is a play about this, you know, adding all that kind of stuff that he do. Um, but uh, while he didn't do so much to fill out the relationship between uh, Leontes and Hermione, what he did do in that first scene uh, where everyone's together, he had... The characters obviously reading their lines uh, as the characters, as characters are want to do. But he also had other characters have them pop out different words that would sort of cue Leontes, uh, I hate this word, trigger him into his jealous rage and to imply mm -hmm. that he was not a well man even before the events mm -hmm. of this play. Um, and of the, of the productions that I've been in and uh, the one that I've seen, I think the production sort of sold it the most. I I believed uh, that Leontes was uh, not doing real great. That's one way to do it. Yeah. A lot. Of, I know a lot of my perspective is I'm an actor. I see things and I do things. <laughs> I, I'm not exactly a director. I don't have that sort of directorial mind. Um, but that's that's my perspective. I like yeah. that. I, I mean, I'm all about like fucking with Shakespeare on this podcast. Yeah. So. Like these these texts are like 400 fucking years old. We can try some shit. Yeah. I mean, they, no, they did at the time. They they definitely did at the in the period. Yeah. Like, yeah. We, we are precious about this in a way that like they were not like, sure. like you know. So yeah. Yeah, I always say there are like four different versions of Hamlet, so yep. you mm -hmm. know. <laughs> Oh, but um, I have the con I have a conflated text, and it has this and that. And yeah. Oh, this other editor has another thing, and I disagree, and I'm going to slam him in my journal. <laughs> Very real. Mm. Uh, Regine, do you have anything you'd like to add about Leontes? No, yeah, and I'll preface this by saying that, like, while I don't, like, adhere to, like, genre convention, like, just because you're doing a tragedy, that means it has to be, like, 
depressing the entire three hours or whatever. Like, no, like you can actually like find those moments of lightness, lean into the humor. But what I will say that I like about the romances, so um, Pericles, Cymbeline, The Winter's Tale and, and Tempest is that I think about what is the play trying to illuminate generally? And for me, they're stories about redemption and you know recovery, recovering something that's lost, about resurrection often, these these things that allow us to rebirth, like the, the, these sorts of ideas that allow for real big mistakes to have been made, but that not being the end of the person themselves, right? And and so while it is initially like, like what the fuck Leontes, because you're right, it's like right off the bat, he's just this jealous man and, and he's paranoid and just, you know, untrusting and all of these things, it, 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 it can turn you off. You're like, well, why the fuck am I going to care about this guy? Mm-hmm. And so I think for me, like, and it's hard to set that at the top when that, when that sort of character emerges so quickly, that this is going to be a story about redemption and reconciliation and, you know, rebirth and all of that stuff. Like, it's really hard to like establish that really quickly when like, I don't know, 20 lines in, roar is coming from the aunties. But that said, I think, you know, I think that this is one of those moments where like paying attention to the exposition is important. I think, you know, the fact that Polixenes has been at court for nine and a half months and Hermione is about to have the baby. And it's like, you know, these are two people that if, if I remember correctly, they hadn't really met before, hadn't really spent time together before. And when we meet them, we see this really intimate friendship. And because, you know, it is a world in which that sort of intimate friendship between a man and a woman must be problematic if they are not husband and wife. Mm-hmm. You can see the ways in which like the structures of that kind of society are playing on Leontes. And also, you know, like, and I've, I've often, so I read this, there's this Hogarth is doing like the novelization of the Shakespeare plays. So like Hagseed um, is like the novel version of the Tempest, um, and that one of the first ones to come out was for the Winter's Tale, A Gap in Time, and it's it's beautiful. It's not perfect. I have all sorts of issues with it, but there are. It is actually kind of a beautiful novel. And the thing that has stuck with me from the moment that I read it is there's a line, and I think it's like the Paul the Paulina character who says this is like it, talking about um, Hermione and Polixenes, the P- Hermione and Polixenes character, who cares if they're a little bit in love with each other because you're all mm. a little bit in love with each other. Mm. And so there's so poly- this world in which- yeah, Exactly, poly, poly, polyxenes, right? Like, there you like, go. I think there's like a world in which like, you know, Leontes is looking at his best friend who maybe was more than just a friend. If you think about the way to describe how they grew up together. Oh, when like, you think about like- Two, like, two lambs frisking in the sun. Exactly, like, mm-hmm. so like there's this intimate friendship and then here's his wife who like, you know, he's he's having like this other intimate relationship with. And then like the two of them seem to be having an intimate relationship. And I wonder if there's a world where Leontes is like, in having the two most important people in my life come together to be important to each other, am I losing either or both of them, right? Like, Ooh. and I can, I get that, right? Like that makes sense to me when like, I mean, I, I have a very good friend of mine who's always like, it's kind of a joke, but it's not. When her friends hang out without her, she's like, okay, 
it's okay, you can hang out without me, but don't forget me. And I'm like, oh, I get oh. that. I, I absolutely understand that. You know, like I've been in that situation where like, you know, I have a very close friendship with someone and we introduce a third person and like, and I see them getting along and I'm like, I am so happy that you like each other, but also please don't leave me. <laughs> like, like, like don't become a thing and forget me. And And I can see when I put that sort of human spin on it, you know, and of course it it means that you have to like, the audience needs to remember all this other exposition, right? Which is sometimes hard in Shakespeare because there's so much that's coming at you. You you yeah. hold on to things that are like immediately in front of you. But if you have that exposition in your mind, two old friends, um, you know, what he's come to the court, he's been there for nine and a half months. She's nine and a half months pregnant. She's about to have the baby. Is it my baby? Is it his baby? Like I've watched them like get really, really close. And like, I don't know, like I, I put them together. Like I, I can see how easily one could spiral. Right. And, and, and yeah. it, it feels very human. Yeah. And I actually appreciate that because it's like, right. That is how frail my own humanity is. And it's scary to be reminded of that. And maybe that's why we're like, Leontes. But I actually am like, <laughs> no, actually Leontes. And I believe that like, because that is so human, hating him is actually not an option because I need to believe that he's redeemable because that means I can be redeemable too. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know how you do that. Like, I think, you know, the idea of like extra textual stuff, you know, is helpful. But like, you know, I think if I were to, if I were to direct a, 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 a version of The Winter's Tale, I think for me, establishing that trio as a whole, as a unit, as opposed to like somehow broken up, I think that would be really yeah, important. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. 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 Looking at him through that lens or even thinking about looking at him through that lens, I can feel myself relating to him less like, it's like, stop please stop doing everything that you're doing and more of a like oh no stop <laughs> like <laughs> like yeah. I, don't, I don't want to have to watch you do this yeah but from yeah. a place of care instead of from a place of like I don't want to watch the victim have to go through everything you're about to put them through um right which is what I and think I typically see him as yeah and that's not to excuse yeah the bullshit he's about yes. to do yes but like you know i just i think you know to sit there in the audience and say like i would never do that something that horrific right all the time right like maybe we're not condemning people to death but like i will never speak to you again because of a misunderstanding or like you know we we we, we have those those kind of huge you know breaks all the time and yeah um you know it's it's very much you know, it's very much Leontes story, even though like Hermione suffers a lot and is thrown under the bus and it has her her son die and her child taken away from her and then yeah. she dies and or maybe she doesn't. We'll find out. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's but it's still it's Leontes redemption arc. And I feel like from, for modern sensibilities, that's, that's the sticking point, you know, yeah. uh, in, in ye olde Elizabethan times, uh, Oh God. Uh, you know, it's very much a, it's a definitely totally a, a man's world and it's a very masculine society, even with a queen, it's still preoccupied with men 
so much hinges upon this uh, character development, this redemption that we don't get to see because I don't know. Uh, yeah. And we're yeah, it's there's there's so much on Leontes just mm. structurally because of this play. It's it's a pickle, um, and it's a it's a very very yeah. uh, thin needle to thread. Yeah. And you're right. Like there is so much because we center Leontes in those first three acts. It does feel like it's this like sort of, you know, male centric play. Like Leontes is the person you have to be invested in if you are invested in this play. But but actually, I think what's really lovely about it is that this play doesn't work if not for the women. If not for the women, mm -hmm. there would be no point in this play. Like Paulina, who is both sort of you know, voice of of morality and ethics and and courage, who is the boss to be like, you're a fucking asshole and you're wrong and you're gonna regret this one day. Um, and she's so right that Leontes, Leontes gives himself over to her and says like, you know what, you're right. Whatever you tell me, I'll do. So yeah, he's a king, but he 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 sort of relinquishes his own self sovereignty to this to this woman who was the only person who was brave enough to, to say you're wrong um, mm -hmm. and was right. And, you know, and I know there are productions where at the end they, they want Hermione to kind of turn him away. But, but I find that Hermione, if you think about like this, in a, you know, not that I'm religious, but there are such Christian elements in the play. If, if mm -hmm. you think of Hermione as redeemer, as savior, to play it that she forgives him is actually this really beautiful moment. Um, and there are people who's like, well, how do you like, how do you like, you know, justify her forgiving him for being such an asshole? And it's like, is he truly repentant? That's how you figure it out. If your Leontes is truly repentant. And if you think about it, he spent the last 16 years in penitence unendingly. Mm -hmm. Then there's something to be said about, about that. Like, you know, again, time, what does time do in this play? Yeah. So I'm, I am not, I'm not non-religious. I, I grew up Catholic. I'm hard lapsed. Mm. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I, I was pretty observant for a while um, because I was a, I was a church canter. So I'm, I also mm. have uh, baked in uh, Christianity in me. But, 13 uh, years of Catholic school. So I understand. Hey, I'm so sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, you know, and my my partner is Jewish, and talking mm. through this, I mean, it, it's just different cultures, and uh, you say what you will about Abrahamic religions, it's it's very, there are differences, obviously, but yeah, I've mostly been thinking about this from a secular lens, but yeah, imagining it as a a, a Christian ish allegory, almost, yeah, that forgiveness, that the divine forgiveness, even with you know yeah. Apollo or whatever you will, yeah. Uh, I, that makes that makes a lot of sense and it's funny it's interesting like in these later plays so sorry like this is nerd me talking about like going back to this idea of genre the plays that are now thought of as the romances it's you know pericles was like around 1609 um cymbeline would have been like 16 10-ish uh winter's tale like you know 16 over around that same time and then tempest in 16 12 13 all four of them have this idea of forgiveness rolling through them, mm -hmm. right? Like there's the pivotal scene in Tempest where, you know, Ariel says, if I were human, I would feel pity for these humans who are going through 
some shit, which is Prospero yeah. putting them through some emotional shit. And Prospero's like, oh shit, yeah, I if you as a non-human can feel pity, then why I as a human should be able to feel pity? And that leads him to forgiveness. You know, it's a similar thing in Cymbeline, Yakimo is forgiven. In Pericles, even, you know, this this man goes through all this shit. And there's not so much that he needs to forgive anything, but there is this world of like people kind of being reborn in a a a, a place of like ethical and moral goodness after, you know, maybe doing some really fucked up shit. And it's interesting to think about like, you know, what, I mean, you know, you can't, you don't want to be like biographical with this stuff, but Shakespeare's working through some pretty interesting philosophical things in these plays. I think it's why like, you know, that element when we were saying earlier, like how, like kind of leaning into the magical or the supernatural or the the, like non-realist part of it, because you can't really do that in in realist terms, but you can in a fairy tale. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> Regine, since you were just talking all about magical feelings in this play and also about the wonderful Paulina, Paulina, whatever you want to call her. Um, <laughs> yeah. Paulina. I, I, Paulina, yes. <laughs> there we go. That's, that's the one. <laughs> um, I guess we should dive into talking about her a little bit. Yeah. She has a little bit of controversy surrounding her and what she does in the play. People mm-hmm. love to debate whether or not Paulina is a magical character who creates a statue of Hermione, who is 16 years older than the one that died and magically brings her to life. Or if she is just like a really badass friend who came up with an amazing plan to stow her bestie away for a little while until her husband could get himself straight and uh, brought her back when, when things were ready for her. So I am curious with that debate, what both of you think the pros and cons of kind of both of those sides are and then what your preference is. Um, Regine, would you like to start with that one? Yeah. Huh. So this is a tricky one because like, so when I first read the play, the first time I ever read The Winter's Tale, and 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 it's one of those plays. It's one of the plays with some of the trickiest language in Shakespeare. The the like syntax and the like structure of of lines is is so odd. And so when you're reading it, you're kind of like, what? First off, what are you actually tr- saying and doing before you even like is what you're saying and doing like believable? And and I remember because like I am trained to be a skeptic, and I also just naturally am like a cynic, I remember being like, no way. Like, nah, this isn't magic. Like y'all two conspired together to pretend like she was dead and blah, 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 blah. And and I remember feeling like like that quite viscerally. But then I I saw it. Like for the so I saw it, I saw a production of The Winter's Tale for the first time in 2018. I was in London. It was at the Globe. And this is the reason why I went to see it. The, the biggest reason why I wanted to see it was because I was like, does this moment work? Does this moment land? Does Paulina get away with it? Or not does she get away with it, but can Paulina be trusted, right? Mm. 
And, and so I'm watching it and I'm, I'm standing in the yard and I'm like, you know, paying attention. And the actor who played Hermione is on a pedestal and in like perfect stillness. And I'm like, but we know like, she's not really dead. Like it's not really a statue. Cause you know, I'm an actor and I'm like, I know she's an actor and all this stuff. And, and the whole thing is happening, but the emotional weight of the moment, because you've got Leontes who spent 16 years regretting what he did and in penitence for what he did. And you've got Perdita there who never knew her mother and is seeing her mother for the first time. And all these other people who were like, you know, we 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 mourned her, she's gone, and yet here is this lifelike representation of her. And oh my God, like like even though they think that it's a statue, but it's so lifelike and it's so real. And it, it's even aged like she would be. And, and how that affects them. And, and what's wild is like emotion is catching. That's, I mean, that's the thing, feeling is catching. If, if It's like when you hear a baby cry and you feel, is that baby okay? Or if you know walk by somebody who's crying and you're like, I don't know if I should intrude upon their personal space, but are you okay? Or, if, or how laughter is infectious. If someone starts laughing, you start laughing too. And so what yeah, happens is- beings. Yeah. Exactly. So what ends up happening is like it is the, actually the emotion of the moment that takes over and you almost don't give a shit mm-hmm. if Paulina is telling the truth or not, because the emotion of the moment is so big and so full and so real that you cannot help but partake in it. And and so what happened was in that moment when when Hermione like comes and I actually like looked this up so I could say it like. I remember the moment, so so Paulina says, you know, she's like, I can do magic. Like, if you want her to move, I can make it happen. And Leontes is like, please make it happen, make it happen. And Paulina said, <laughs> it is required you do awake your faith. And I started crying immediately because that's what it's about. It's, it's actually, it doesn't matter if Paulina's magical or not. It's not, it doesn't matter if it's a miracle or not. What matters is, do you have faith in this moment? And I think the question is, what do you have faith in? Do you have faith in love? Do you have faith in forgiveness? Do you have faith in family and relationships? If you do trust that, give into that. And so I and so I just like bought it hook, line, and sinker. I was like, I don't even fucking care. Like I was trying to look at like the actor playing Hermione to see like, is she twitching? Like, you know, like I was like, cause like I was just so like, I'm such a fucking cynic. I was like, no, I'm gonna catch it. And I was like, no, it doesn't matter. I I bought it. And and it and it was so effective that I remember like months later watching a recording of it. Cause I was I was in London at the time and I was in, I was in the archives at the Globe, and so they like record everything, and so you can like request an appointment to watch productions at the Globe for like research purposes. And I'm watching oh, it, so- and like, and it's not even like a great video; it's just like a straight-on video. Um, oh, wide so it's not shot, even like yeah. get it, yeah, wide shot. And I'm sitting in this like little tiny in this tiny room, watching it. And again, she says the lines: "It is required you do awake your faith." And I immediately start crying. And a friend walks in and I turn on, I'm like, hey, she's like, oh my God, are you okay? It's like, no, I'm fine. I'm just watching The Winter's Tale and Hermione just woke up and I'm just a mess. And that is how you know the play works. Because that moment doesn't work if the those first three acts 
don't work. Like if you, it, like if you don't sort of like just give yourself over to the moment, then it doesn't, that, 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 like, it's not going to happen. Like, it doesn't matter that Hermione's back. You're just like, mm. but if you kind of just let yourself kind of like Leontes fucked up and Perdita didn't have her mom and now she's back and she's in love. And, and I think it's more about the magic of theater than about the magic of a person. Huh. And, and that, and that's for me, what was so beautiful about it. And it's still like, ah, oh, like full body emotion every time. I feel like that is one of the moments that when you're in a theater, if it's working, it's like you can cut the tension in the theater with a knife, but in the best way yeah. possible. Yes. Yeah. 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 Really amazing. Brendan, do you want to add anything to that? Uh, I just want to say, Regine, that was such a lovely and beautiful answer. But unfortunately, this uh, question awakened <laughs> the worst part of me, which is this pedantic sort of uh, cinema sense kind of lore seeking nerd who overthinks uh, the world building of stuff. <laughs> and OK, so in this in this recording, I have been I have been really uh, uh, just really simping hard from a boy, Mamilius. Uh, and yeah. this question awakened my faith in uh, wanted to take justice for this boy. So anyway, magic. Okay, let's think about the pros and cons here. Um, if if this it is if Paulina or Paulina Paulina uh, is able to wield <laughs> magic, well, obviously in this world, uh, this is a society that puts a lot of faith in the gods as like arbiters of in human affairs. Um, you know, they have uh, Cleomenes and Dion, or Dion, I don't know, uh, Celine Dion go out to um, uh, <laughs> receive, receive uh, a, a, a premonition from the from the Delphic Oracle about uh, whether or not Leontes is actually being not being a huge fucking douche. Um, so like in that society, you know, there is this sort of divine magic that exists in the world in a, in a material sense. And for Leontes hubris, Leontes' son, Mamilius, is killed. So that has a palpable effect. Magic exists in this world. Mm -hmm. So with that, if, Paul, if Paulina is able to wield this magic and bring Hermione back to life, why doesn't she fucking do that for Mamilius? Come on. That's, That's a really huge good fucking oversight. Huge fucking oversight. <laughs> that is oversight. a really good question. Thank you. A... Thank you. Hashtag justice for Mamilius. <laughs> I really want is... this trending. This is a, a topic that is near and dear <laughs> to my heart. And also when I said that I've seen one production, I've lied. I've seen two. Uh, just one wasn't in person. I saw Cheek by Jowl do a production uh, online on YouTube uh, a couple years back. I watched it when I was supposed to be working at my desk job. And uh, they actually had Mamilius come back at the end when there's this big, you know, lovely tableau with the, the actors. And just in silence, Mamilius is there. And see, like, while everyone else is still, he just kind of wanders through, takes a look, and leaves. Ooh. This is all very off topic to Paulina. Uh, <laughs> but so let's bring it back to that. If Polina is not magic, okay, let's say that Hermione is sheltered away safely, safely off stage uh, in an, uh, for 16 years. For me personally, this is a matter of taste, I feel like that stra strains some credibility. 
Kalina, I assume, lives nearby to wherever the fuck Leontes lives slash is uh, seeking penitence for his huge fucking crimes against humanity. Uh, is Hermione just kind of kicking it? And when they have to go out in, in uh, public, she puts on, uh, you know, those glasses with the big nose and the and the mustache, the Groucho Marx glasses. Um, mm -hmm. Hey, look, you know, I grew up I, in Utah and Elizabeth Smart was like missing in plain sight for a long time. So. Oh, damn. Oh, well, OK. You we're bringing know. Elizabeth Smart <laughs> into this. <laughs> well, now yeah. I feel like a huge jackass. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, Emily, my partner, uh, they said that uh, what they really want to see is uh, the cottagecore lesbian romance between Hermione and Polina <laughs> just kind of kicking it while Leontes is over there in his hair shirt uh, <laughs> dealing with his <laughs> shit. Finally, men will uh, men will blame their wives for a made up crime and cause their firstborn son to die rather than go to therapy. It's a huge tragedy. Mm -hmm. the end of my inane bullshit which didn't answer anything of value <laughs> so the only thing i want to add I, I was talking to somebody recently and i don't even remember why we were talking about the winter's tale but he was talking about a production where he saw that like the milius was played as a complete and total brat like just oh. the worst oh. fucking child like you knew so we're like, glad the like, kid dies <laughs> no, 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 no. so like so like <laughs> But sort of like, you know, like imagine like, you know, Trump at 11 years old, like if it was like, you know, that Oof. version of Mamelius, like just a brat, spoiled, just a, just a little ugh, son of a bitch, like a Leontes in training. And so, oh, you know, if you, okay. if you, if you want the world to be okay, well, you, you don't want that to come back right and and so maybe oh. so that i think that's one way that they that that particular production he was like and it, for him he was like and it made so much sense it made so much sense why like we couldn't have him come back and why he had to go because like he was just a terrible child and i was like okay that is really really interesting the other thing i was gonna say if i sort of remember what it was gonna be was like i think the thing about this play and it sucks because like yes justice from amelius like like, let's have an actual reason why he has to die. Like, this 11-year-old needs to go. But there is something to be said about, like, <laughs> if redemption is to come through the women, then Perdita needs to not have something in her way, right? Like, right. as okay. as Leontes's only child, she inherits the kingdom. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a lie. Because a she marries Florizel. Yeah, Florizel, yeah. yeah, but, like, but because she is like the only child, so you have this like new world that is kind of sort of like established through like the the line of the women. And and there's something about that. I mean, I, I don't want to go into, you know, was Shakespeare feminist or not? I'm not going to go into that because I think that's a bit of a reductive conversation, <laughs> oh, you know, but, but, but like, but it's, but there's something about that, that like feels, I don't know, like, again, I think about in the romances, how, you know, it is Marie, Marina it is like a savior figure and even Miranda in her mm -hmm. own way, like is is this like savior figure or if not savior, this like figure that like lifts everybody up. And so if if the heir to everything were a man, does that mean that we would just keep playing this sort of paranoia, this paranoid patriarchy over and over and over again versus like, these women who yes they have been wronged but like also they're like you know what like 
let us begin again. Mm-hmm. Like the justice for Mamilius is the <laughs> redemption of everybody else. Maybe. Oh, no. maybe. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. The real treasure was the Mamilius in all of us, is what we right. <laughs> 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 somewhere the ghost of Mamilius is like no that's not right no I want to live again I want to taste food again I want to be a real boy I want to uh, be a real boy wow alright well let's transition into mm-hmm. what I think is the most fun question that we have today mm-hmm. which is uh this play it's got like the most iconic stage direction of all time uh he exits pursued by a bear (laughs) um but i think it's so interesting because like every theater kid knows this line like everybody kind of knows pursued by a bear if you're if you're a shakespeare kid you definitely know it but if you're not a shakespeare kid and you show up (laughs) And you don't know that Exit Pursued by a Bear is coming at the end of the first act. Uh, I don't know. So I I think it, it, it can present an interesting like directorial challenge. Uh, because it, it could it could cost like a lot of money to put a a more literal version of this on stage. <laughs> um but I've definitely also seen when uh, I don't know if you remember this, Brendan, but at the Folger, it was basically just like the lights turned off. Like, yeah, they <laughs> they they solved the problem by getting rid of the bear. <laughs> yeah, they they, they just kind of didn't do anything, and I was like, well, I know what that's supposed to mean, but I have a like, feeling pursued by bear. Yeah, like uh, I think they had the guy say that. He may have, well, yeah. Yeah. And oh like, I, if I or were an, an actor, audience yeah. member who didn't, who was not familiar with this play, I would be like, "What? What's going on?" Aaron Posner. <laughs> um. So yeah, I'm just interested in like, how do you approach a stage direction like that? What fun ideas might you have? Do either of you have a preference for who starts? May I start? Yeah, go yes, for please. it. Okay. In my productions, they both dealt with it in very different ways, both involving, you know, a uh, puppet and puppet-like elements. Chesapeake Shakespeare had a big sort of bread and puppet style bear uh, where three actors came out on stage with big poles, like two of them had paws and one was the main, you know, bear head torso thing. With that, they uh, dis- they disguised it coming into the scene with fog and it had glowing eyes and, you know, uh, very dim, dreadful sort of lighting. Not the lighting was not dreadful. The lighting was wonderful. I don't want to dra- I don't want to drag any of my coworkers at CSC. Uh, what I meant was that they created an atmosphere of dread. There we go. Saved it. Uh, <laughs> so it kind of snuck on and then kind of. Um, but in kind of, you can't really kind of when you're a big bear puppet, uh, did a big sort of splay of the arms uh, and grabbing and Antigonus and dragging him to his doom. With Baltimore Shakespeare Factory, the bear was revealed over time with different actors standing in as part of living scenery, sort of building the bear very gradually from these polygonal abstract shapes, which came to form the bear, which then killed Antigonus. I, I'm not going to say what I thought uh, did 
things better or worse because that's that's tacky. I will say, I uh, my rule of thumb, uh, if I if I had my druthers and if I were any any kind of competent director, I would follow the sort the uh, George uh, George Lucas uh, Steven Spielberg uh, like Jaws reveal like uh, keep the monster hidden until absolutely mm. necessary it needs to be shown you can't really fix a uh, a wide uh, swath of shakespeare knowledge in terms of oh i didn't know there was going to be a bear in this <laughs> uh, but i think you can and convey the surprise and the terror of this creature very suddenly uh, as part of this very wild play where it fucking anything can happen yeah just basically Keep it cute with the monster until you need to be big with it. Hmm. Hmm. I love that. Regine, what would you like to add? No, I mean, I think I agree with that. It's tricky, right? Because like you said, it's it's one of like the most famous stage directions in Shakespeare and maybe like of ever of like mm-hmm. any play, right? Because it's Enter like, Pirates what? though is up there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's also just like, but a like a bear is so random. It's so fucking random. And it's like, what? Like, but why? Like, why? Um <laughs> and I think I think you're I I agree with Brendan, like, you know, like like the idea of the monster present without necessarily seeing it on the, until we need to see it. And I, I do one like this is one of those things that I don't know that you actually need to see it ever actually because it's such a brief moment that like you could just instruct your actor to see the thing and maybe like have a sound cue react to it and and go oh, yeah. sorry to interrupt i would also like to add an addendum to the the sort of jaws rule um this sort of the flip side of uh you know re- it, keeping it hidden until you need to reveal also know when to hide it again uh because yeah. you know if you have people staring at the bear you just made uh, for too long then people are like oh that doesn't really look like a bear or i could have <laughs> done that with i could have done a better exactly. bear with my theater company yeah. yeah sorry to interrupt please continue no no that was actually the perfect interruption because i was about to say like the like again the one time that i saw a production of of winter's tale and this is the same globe production that I saw that made me cry at the end. Like the the bear was just this like, I don't know if it was like a what it was, but it was like a banner hanging up. And when it was time, like the banner just dropped mm-hmm. and it was like a bear, like grr. And I was like, oh, yeah. that felt so anticlimactic. Cause like, I knew <laughs> it was coming. Uh, I was like, you know, cause it's also like, it's like, he's just landed on, on the shores of Bohemia. So he's on a beach. Like, why would a bear be on the beach? Like, I don't know. Do bears hang out on a beach? Certain and like, you, you know, and like, of course it, the, like part of the that history is that like, maybe. <laughs> um... <laughs> Continue please. Bear snacks. But no, but like, and part of the thing is like, me, like you know, it's it's entirely possible that when the play was going on, like there was some bear baiting happening, and so there was like, we've got this bear, why don't we use it? Awesome. Oh. But it's also like, you know, like, but why? Like again, like using the bear because the bear is there is like whatever. Anyway, but I remember feeling like, oh, that's really anticlimactic. Like I was so interested to see what you were gonna do, and that just feels like a joke. Like you know what I mean? Like a ha ha bear, but not really. And I, and I feel yeah. like it would have probably been more like thrilling if if if, if it were sound and lights and because yeah. you know there's like a storm happening and like there's all these ways that you can sort of like hide the whole notion of it and I was like maybe maybe that's the time that you lean into 
to theater magic and stage design as opposed to just like, you know, trying to make the bear real. Yeah. Like, come on, Globe. You have how much money? I mean, in fairness, in fairness, yeah. they don't have as much money as we think. <laughs> they, that's, they, that's totally they, fair. As yeah. soon as I said that, it's like, I remember them <laughs> almost having to shudder. It's like, oh, yeah, uh, yeah that not yeah. entirely accurate American Brendan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I got to see your Chesapeake version, Brendan. And yeah. I thought it was excellently done. Okay. Like, cool. yeah, I, especially like in my experience with Shakespeare, some of my favorite moments have been from kind of the lower budget companies and seeing like, mm. okay, how are you going to make this magic happen without a million dollars? And yeah, I thought that puppet was so cool. I thought the entrance of the puppet was so cool. The eyes came first and did like peer through the fog perfectly. Yeah, I don't know. I think there are so many fun ways to do exactly what you just said, Regine. Like, lean into that theater magic and get yeah. creative and you'll find a way. But maybe don't just yeah. turn the lights off. No, <laughs> no don't do that. That's <laughs> that too, too meta. I'm sorry. Yeah. Or just That's drop just a like... poster. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, yeah, I feel like just turning the lights off, like, I'd be sitting there and I'm like, is there a blackout happening? Like, uh -huh. what's going on? You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, I think it's like when when given the opportunity to do something that's like a little bit ridiculous, really go for it. Because why not? Mm -hmm. You know, like, because I just think to myself, like Shakespeare's writing this and someone did someone just say like, you know, we've got a bear. There's a bear <laughs> like it's going to be there. So like, like we, we were going to have it until like, you know, Monday morning. So <laughs> you want to use it. <laughs> we have to utilize this bear. Gonna be making like, noises yeah. during the show anyway, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> justify it. <laughs> I like to imagine take it in a fantastical direction instead of real life, which is horrifying sometimes. Bill, we have uh, the Baron uh, Bearsley of Bearbridge. Uh, he he has wanted to. <laughs> he's enjoyed our company for so long. Would would you please? He could give us so much funding. Would you just have him walk on? It could be really lovely. I think. <laughs> It's the inspiration. Just a bear, for just a bear uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or just, yeah, like a, a bear royal. But of course, you know that doesn't exist. We don't have anthropomorphic bears, and that's mm -hmm. honestly a, a a con of this universe. It is a shame. <laughs> All right, y'all. Well, before we exit pursued by a bear, I have a, <laughs> one yeah, final bear. question. So, <laughs> sorry, this. Uh, no, no, no. So if I you think, didn't say it, I'd be disappointed. Right. <laughs> um, so I think this play is a gem. It is one of my favorites mm. in the Shakespeare canon. Yeah. And I don't think it gets produced as much as it could. Like, I would love to yeah. see it up there with the Romeo and Juliets of the world. Yeah. And I think, like, part of why it doesn't get produced is maybe this problem play status a little bit. But I think it's also just that it's a lesser known play comparatively so i'm just wondering like what would the two of you say to somebody who was considering producing this and was nervous about it or maybe a theater company who is avoiding it altogether for some reason uh to get them mm. to give it a shot regine do you want to start with that 
I feel this way about so many Shakespeare plays, like that people just, you know, they're a little bit like, I don't know what to do with it. So let me do something that everybody knows what to expect. And I'm like, well, actually, but but that's actually the exact reason why to do it because because nobody would know what to expect. There's so much room to cultivate how this play could be seen, could be received, could be experienced because because no one ever does that. I mean, like, how many Romeo and Juliets have we seen? Is it ever different? Is it ever is Juliet like? And, and I love Juliet. I think Juliet is one of the great characters of the canon like I put her up there with with Hamlet and Macbeth and Lear as like the great great roles but like we we've seen so many Juliets and we've seen so many Beatrices and Benedicts and I'm like here's a play that we don't often do that we still have questions about that we're still trying to figure out we're still trying to understand and and try to like make it make sense is that not what theater is for right like the whole point is like let's take something that's hard and difficult and tough and unclear and let's use the space for play and experimentation and pretend and imagination to to figure things out and and I think the winter's tale does that I, I think it asks all the big questions and just asks us like okay how do we how do we figure this out how do we figure out how to forgive how do we how do we figure out how to how to repent how do we figure out to say you know i was wrong like you know the things that are so hard for us to do like like leontes has to say i was wrong he does come to that conclusion and sure and yes you know maybe maybe it is too late for mamelius it's maybe too late for hermione it's too late for Perdita, but he does say i was wrong and I'm sorry, and let me repent for that, and then spend 16 years doing that, right? And there's something, you know, in a world where it's so hard to do that, so hard to say I'm sorry, and it's so hard to forgive. Here's a play that, like, asks us to, like, actually figure that out um, and work through that, and that's what I love to do. Like, I mean, I, I the plays that, like, have room left to explore and ask big questions. Those are the ones that I, I love to do. And so I, I think, I think, you know, be brave, <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. that, that's kind of yeah. cliche and, and like, you know, like cheesy, but like if you are doing this play, it asks you to be brave and bold and to be open and generous. And I, and I think, you know, I think of myself as a storyteller before I think of myself as a, anything else. And, and I think that sort of opportunity is, is always going to be a gift. That's why I say do do the winter stuff. <laughs> yeah. Amen. Amen. Yeah. I think if you're not going to be brave, why do theater in the first place? Truth. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I want to do safe things. I want to make money. <laughs> want to be comfortable and wear a pretty dress. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's all I want in my theater. Be comfortable and wear a pretty dress. <laughs> I can't blame you for the latter. Um, but <laughs> Brendan, do you have anything you would like to add to that? Yeah. Um, so what I think is interesting about this play and this go going back to the question of the, the two halves of the play and how different they are, there's sort of a, a yin and yang, you know, you ha- on mm. one half, you have this very dark period full of jealousy and anger and torment and abuse but you have this this little spot of light uh with Perdita being saved and 
and being raised up and there's hope for the future and hope for redemption for the aunties as well and then you have the other half which is lighter and frothier and full of fun and dancing satyrs and wonderful things that uh, cause you to awake in your faith um but there is that bit of shadow there you have polixenes spying on his son florizel mm. going behind his dad's back Herdida. We could talk about the shepherd and, and uh, his whole thing too, where like he blames Perdita and his his whole his whole dealy. Yeah, so like you know, ha taking halves, uh, leaning into both. You know, Regine, you said earlier, finding different elements uh, and different these different parts of the canon. You know, uh, tragedies can have quite funny bits in them, and comedies can have these really kind of things that make you go huh well that makes me feel kind of bad actually mm. yeah leaning into those two things i think this this play can lend itself to finding different parts of the human experience i think it's it's a a very rich vein of that sort of raw emotion to be found in there yeah. and also i think we've talked a lot about how we can earn the audience's trust with finding ways to make Leontes, if possible, not likable, but worthy of that redemption in the audience's eyes and earning the trust like, oh, you know, this thing uh, that happened with the statue, it can, you know, it can make Regine cry in London. Uh, <laughs> um, but I think also what's important as performers, as people who produce theater, we also have to trust the audience as well. Yeah. You know, even with when this play throws people a curveball where, oh, it's a, there's a bear. There's a bear. Um, <laughs> well, what the fuck? That was, that man <laughs> got angry real quick. We have to trust the audience that they yeah. can keep up with us. And when we do our jobs well, they can do that. So, you know, that's, uh, <laughs> we joked about making easy theater, but this play being as chalk of lock with difficulties as it is, when we do our job right, we can release our preconceptions and our anxieties like, oh, I hope they get this. I hope they do this. Yeah. So it's like, they'll yeah. watch. And hey, maybe they won't like it. That's them. This play may not make people very happy. You know, if you're producing this play, people might not buy Leontes, uh redemption at the end. Uh, yeah. they, they reject it. And that's I think that's okay. You know, theater criticism, that's, I think it's worthwhile. It, I mean, it kind of sucks when you're like, oh man, this reviewer did not like it. <laughs> they, they brought up some actually valid points. But yeah, I think just trusting in your own craft. Yeah. You must awaken your faith in your own work uh, to, to deliver yeah. this, not only a product, but a story yeah. as a, a collaborative story told with, all of our friends in costumes and lights and staging. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. If I may add like to that, I think that was so like, that's, that's exactly it. Like, you know, we, we talk about willing suspension of, of disbelief when you go to see the theater. And because we say disbelief, like the thing about disbelief is if you, if you do that, if you're an audience member and you're like, yes, I'm going to like, I'm going to let go of that ability to disbelieve in something. And inherently what you're also doing is like, I'm going to have faith that these people aren't going to steer me wrong. 
in, 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 in the story that I need to hear. And I also think like, like I'm not one of those people to revere Shakespeare. Like I love, I love the material. I love the work, mm-hmm. but I don't think of him as like the be all and end all. But there is something so lovely about like, I mean, he said to himself, sure, exit pursued by a bear, you know, sure. Hermione is a statue. So it's like, it's, it's, it's to big be, swings. <laughs> yeah, like, so if, if he's gonna take that big swing, I say let's go on that journey with with him. Why not? Like, why not yeah. take that as an audience member? Like, I, I mean, when I'm an audience member, I want the thing that I'm seeing to like to take me on that. I want to hop on that roller coaster and like take that drop and just like and I'm trusting you that like it's all gonna like work out well. Don't take advantage of that, obviously, but like also trust that that the audience is willing to go there with you. Um, because otherwise they wouldn't have come to see the fucking show. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's 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 a lot better to with with these later plays. Shakespeare was they're very experimental. He yeah. makes those big swings. Yeah. And you know, rather than making very safe theater, uh, oh, we're putting on, we're being very brave this season. We're going to put on <laughs> mackers. No, I. I love the play, and I think it's pretty good. Uh, <laughs> rather than doing sh- safe Shakespeare, yeah, just really go for it, man. Make swing big with yeah. Shakespeare. Yeah, that's a yeah. just a roundabout way to say I agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, I, I'm like, this is the thing that I'm preaching all the time. Is like, I think people forget that, like, when Shakespeare was writing, the whole fucking thing was a big ass experiment. Like they, like they didn't fucking know. They were like making it up as they go, like. Like they were literally, yeah, it was like, it literally, it was like, you know, are are people going to want to see theater on a regular basis? I don't fucking know. Let's just write the stories and see. And, you know, the notion that like you do Shakespeare because it's safe when Shakespeare itself wasn't safe or any of his contemporaries is just like, well, you're not paying attention to what the dude was doing. And so I'm just like, Mm -hmm. like, do the weird plays, man. Like, like that. Get weird with it, man. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, just do the fucking weird ones. Like I, I like, you know, I know this is slightly off topic, but I find the ones that are like the fucking weirdest and and, and like what the he- was he what was he smoking? Those are the ones that are the most fun and the most revelatory. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. And on this weed podcast, I think <laughs> <laughs> that is the perfect place to wrap up. Yes. <laughs> so uh, before we say goodbye to y'all, I think this episode will drop. It's a week from next Tuesday. I'm not okay. sure. I'm not sure what that date is. But before you go, if you have any projects that are coming up in like late May or over the summer that you might want to plug... Regine, do you have anything? I mean, like the the biggest project that I'm going to plug right now is As You Like It with Actors Shakespeare Projects. Um, If you are in the Boston, the greater Boston area of Massachusetts, come on down and see it. We are playing at the Balk Balch Arena at Tufts University in the Somerville Medford area. And it's, I think it's going to be a bit of a party. It's a, it's, it's a gender expansive exploration of the play and I think it's gonna be just you know lovely and bright and fun and come and see it if you're in the area hell yeah Yeah. I will link to that in the show notes and uh Brendan how about you 
Uh, this summer, I am blessedly free. I, <laughs> I've, I've recently incorporated uh, boundaries into my life. Nice. And yeah, <laughs> Not sweet. I, uh, Hamlet has taken up a good chunk of this year. Uh, so I'll be taking some time to to travel to finally plan uh, our wedding. Uh, <laughs> I just heard from the other room. My partner cheered. Um, <laughs> and um, I'm going to explore other avenues of, of performance. I'm also an emerging voiceover artist. Um, so if if you want to uh, hear my work, uh, you can find me on Instagram at Gumption Voiceovers. And you can also find me on SoundCloud uh, with Gumption Voiceovers. Hire me, please. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Um Yeah, and uh, that's that's been a, a big part of this year, just kind of auditioning everywhere and submitting. I just crossed the 140 auditions slash submissions threshold. Uh and every like every 20 submissions I get to buy myself something nice. So I'm I'm still figuring out what to buy because okay. I I am a full on consumerist drone. <laughs> as we all are. As we all are. Mm. I love capitalism. Let's talk about it sometime. <laughs> oh, that's another podcast. Uh, <laughs> well, congratulations on uh, having some free time this summer. And I'm excited yes. for uh, you and Emily to get married. Uh, you're yeah. weirdly recording your episodes of this podcast, like almost a month apart, but your episodes are coming oh out a week apart. So Emily from last week's episode is marrying Brendan here. So yes, exciting things. <laughs> anyway, thank you both so much for coming and talking about this play. Thank you. Thank you for having It's my us. pleasure. My pleasure. It, yeah. It was a delight. I'm so glad the two of you hit it off the way that you I did. I drank most of a bottle of wine. Wait, you Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. Like, like I'm... I haven't done that in a while. <laughs> <laughs> That's what the podcast is for. Um, this was awesome. And uh, we'll be back next week to talk about The Merchant of Venice. It will be less fun. Mm, oh, yeah. boy. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> That's going to be an intense one. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see y'all then. Good luck. <laughs> If you enjoyed today's episode, you can follow Regine, Brendan, and Bulls with the Bard at the handles either on your screen or in the description. And tune in next week as we talk with Steph Crignola of the Protest Too Much podcast and my good friend B about Troilus and Cressida. Until then, bye all. A thousand thousand sighs to save, oh, lay me where sad true lover never find my grave to weep there.